Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with Professor Devet Swanepoel, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Pathology at the University of Pretoria about hearing loss. August is Deaf Awareness Month. Dr. Vash Mongal Singh, CEO of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa, will be on the line and we'll be chatting about the extent of the hypertension problem here in South Africa, as well as about the launch of the unique new 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring device. And then I had a request from a listener who wanted to find out more about narcolepsy. So I'll be joined this evening by Dr. Kevin Rosman, chairman of the South African Society of Sleep Medicine, who will be telling us about this disabling neurological disorder of sleep regulation that affects the control of sleep and wakefulness. And finally, I'll be speaking with Annika Kruger, mother of Pippi, and I'm sure by now everyone in the country knows the miraculous story of this brave little girl. And Annika and I will be talking about Pippi's progress thus far, as well as about a new book which has just been launched and which takes us on Pippi's journey from the very beginning. So that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. Health Matters with Karen Key. August is Deaf Awareness Month, so I thought it would be good to chat with Professor Devet Swanepoel, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Pathology at the University of Pretoria, about hearing loss. Professor Swanepoel, good evening. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. Yeah, good evening, Karen. Nice to speak to you again. Right, so let's get right into it, I think. And the last time we spoke, I think we spoke about noise-induced hearing loss and all those rather frightening things. But let's start off by talking about the causes of hearing loss. Yes, well, hearing loss has, uh, I mean, two basic causes. There are permanent sensory neural hearing losses. That's uh, damage to the hearing organ itself, which we call the cochlea. There's delicate little hair cells in there, and they can be damaged quite easily with noise. But there are also genetic conditions that may predispose people to have the sensory neural hearing loss. It's also a permanent condition. So there's no treatment for that except for remediation treatment, like hearing aids and cochlear implants. The other kind of hearing loss is conductive hearing loss. That's where uh, there may be some kind of fluid in the middle ear, specifically in young children where they're prone to a tightness media of some kind, and that causes a temporary hearing loss whilst that fluid is inside the middle ear. Now, it uh, dissipates as soon as that fluid uh, is extracted or drained out of the ear, but certainly, especially in young children, it can be a disabling kind of hearing loss, especially in a noisy classroom environment. How prevalent is hearing loss in South Africa? Well, I think it's one of those underestimated disabilities because we don't really see it. Um, uh, Current estimates indicate that about just over 5% of the population have a disabling hearing loss. But, of course, it increases with age. So about a quarter of adults over 45 years of age have a hearing loss. And those over 65, it's about one in every three adults have a disabling permanent hearing loss. It's one of those conditions, Prof, though, that, you know, you as we get older, we sort of don't really notice that we're not hearing as well as we should be hearing. And we tend to just ignore it. And it's one of those things possibly we should be doing something about a lot sooner. Yes, I think it's one of those things that deteriorates over time. So we kind of get used to the way things sound, you know, gradually. And uh, we just start complaining more about people that don't speak up enough or uh, that the restaurants are too noisy, while in fact uh, our hearing is probably going down. Yes. And, and the television is suddenly softer than it's ever been before, and it's definitely not you, yes. you it's the TV. 
Exactly, and it's uh, it's usually the, the the female spouses who pick this up with their husbands um, because men are more prone to get these hearing losses a little bit earlier than uh, than the ladies. So we shouldn't say that the men don't listen; they'd possibly have a reason. Yes, well, I mean, <laughs> we we always have to uh, qualify ourselves. We we can diagnose a hearing loss, but not a listening disorder. So. <laughs> Well, you see, all the men listening now are going to say, well, you see, dear, it's not, it's not me. It's my, my ears. I can't hear properly. It's, we just, we've just <laughs> exactly. given them an excuse now. That's not good. That's not good at all. Now, th- there are a lot of myths surrounding hearing loss, and I think we need to just talk about some of those because I think they the things that, that we don't really – we hear them, but we, don't, we, we sometimes make things up. So what are some of the yeah. myths around hearing loss? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, one of the myths is that I would always know when I have a hearing loss. We've just mentioned that. You know, sometimes we don't. We we start just having difficulty with communication in, in circumstances where the environment is not ideal, like I said, uh, restaurants, cocktail parties, etc. And uh, we think it's other people's faults, but, uh, fault, but it really is important to have a look at your hearing as early as possible because the sooner intervention starts, uh, the better. I, I think another myth uh, associated with that is that uh, we think there's nothing that can be done about hearing loss. Well, in fact, I mean, we have wonderful technologies and uh, interventions and rehabilitation methods that really are quite remarkable and that can certainly provide excellent outcomes, both for young children who have hearing loss, but also for adults. But the most important thing predicting good outcomes is an early start. So in other words, early intervention. And uh, we have to do this again because this is my favorite one is, is the youngsters who think, well, because they're young, that it's not going to affect them. But this loud blasting music is, is possibly going yeah. to damage their hearing. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, we're living in a, in a new society where sound is suddenly in your ear all the time. People have uh, headsets on their ears and there's a growing body of evidence showing that teenagers in the last five to ten years are, are, are having thresholds that are reducing much quicker than uh, previous generations. So certainly it does seem that uh, I mean, the noise exposure and the listening to music all the time is certainly a risk factor for um, noise-induced hearing loss early on in life. And one of the, uh, the problems with hearing is that some of the noise exposure that you expose yourself to now, the damage will only really show five to ten years from now. So you may think that you're not damaging your hearing, but the damage sets in and the start the process that uh, gradually reduces your hearing. Is hearing something that is routinely tested when babies are born? That's a very good question. If we, we, of course, know that it should be done routinely uh, after babies are born. Unfortunately, in South Africa, unlike other countries uh, like the UK, uh, the US, many other European countries, and Australia, uh, we know that probably about less than 20% of the babies in South Africa are screened for hearing uh, within the first year of life. Well, in fact, it should be 100%. Is this something that parents should be requesting? Is the facility available if it's requested? Yes, the facility is available. Not in all hospitals. Audiologists provide the service. It's a a very quick, uh, non-invasive test. It takes literally less than a minute to test. Um, but you have to have an audiologist handy and uh, they have to have the equipment. So many of the hospitals have audiologists in-house that can do the screening, but not all hospitals at present. 
What should parents be looking out for if they have a young child or a, a, a small baby? What should they be looking out for just to make quite sure that this child can hear properly? Yes, well, maybe I can just uh, say it from the outset that it's extremely important not to wait. So if, you are, if parents have any concerns about their child's hearing, don't wait. Have it checked out as soon as possible because there are critical developmental periods for language, and especially in that first year and 18 months of life, that if children miss out on them, they never really catch up on those uh, periods of language stimulation. So certainly if there's any concern, uh, go see an audiologist uh, or ENT straight away. The other thing is uh, if parents see any delay in speech or language development, the first thing we look at is hearing because that's the natural way in which we access language and in which we um, develop these skills. So certainly any concern in in delayed speech and language development should be a, a, a red light. So what sort of things would the child not be doing? I mean, th- things if you drop something and the child doesn't startle or doesn't look around or something, would that be an indication? Yes. I mean, I think it's a it's an indication, certainly a bit of an imperfect indication. I also don't want the parents to have a false sense of security. Yeah, well, that's, that's the problem, yes. Bang a, bang a, a pot or a, or a pan next to their child's head and, and they respond. You know, hearing, uh, we hear across many frequencies, in fact, from 20 hertz, to 20,000 hertz, which is a big spectrum. And they may hear well in certain areas of that spectrum, but not well in others. And we need hearing in, across all the frequencies to be able to hear well. So, so that's usually not a good check. But if you see, of course, your child's not responding well, then um, to sounds or the things that fall on the ground or envi- environmental sounds, then certainly that's also a risk factor. But I, I wouldn't want to make that a sure fire. Screen. Is this something that we should, as, as parents, be making sure that it's checked before the child at least goes to school? If you have any concerns, if the child is, is, he- is hearing, I mean, you can see that they're hearing, but you might be a little bit concerned they're not hearing properly. Would this be something that you should actually be having checked before the child starts school? Yes, I think that's also a, a very good point. I'm glad you raised that because hearing is, a, it's not just that you hear normally and that you are deaf. There's a whole range of degrees of hearing loss in between. So sometimes a child may just have a mild hearing loss or even a unilateral hearing loss in one ear. So they may develop language, maybe it's a little bit delayed, it's not exactly like their peers. But still, as soon as they come into a school environment where there's higher demands on them and there's environmental noise from other classmates and distractions, then that becomes a disabling hearing loss. And that has effects academically. We know from the research evidence that even a unilateral or a mild hearing loss has significantly, um, significant impacts on educational outcomes. It must also have some social impact as well for children. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think for children, we know that it has a socio-emotional aspect. Uh, uh, they're sometimes more prone to aggression and to act out if they're not hearing properly. So, so many of those behaviors have been associated with hearing losses in children. And, and even in adults, uh, there are socio-emotional aspects of withdrawal, sometimes even depression that's related to hearing loss because hearing is that sense that gives us access to communication. And that's the way in which we interact with our environment. And if we cut off from that or it's uh, affected to some degree you know it affects our quality of life is hearing loss possibly a genetic thing i mean if is it possibly you should you know if you if you have somebody in the family that has a problem with hearing is this then an indication that you should be checking your children as soon as possible 
Yes, certainly. I mean, about 50% of hearing losses will have some genetic cause to them. Uh, That means many of them, of course, will be there from childhood, but certainly some are also progressive. So they may start later on in life and progress over time or be a late onset. So so certainly if there's a family history, especially of childhood hearing losses, that's an important risk factor, something that parents need to be aware of and and something that they need to use to monitor their child uh, more closely. So it's really just a case of being aware and it's sometimes a little bit difficult. But if you suddenly think that people are speaking more softly or the television for some reason isn't working properly or it's suddenly <laughs> very loud in the restaurant or, or whatever the problem is all yes. of a sudden, please don't leave it. Just go and have yourself checked out. It can't do, if, if there's nothing wrong with you, it's fine, but it can't do any harm to check. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think uh, for your own peace of mind, but also if the, there is a problem, you can intervene early and you'll never have the, um, you know, the burden of, of knowing that you, you um, delayed in having it diagnosed. Prof, thank you so much once again for joining us on the show this evening. I hope you've given people a lot to think about and uh, given, you know, hopefully people now will be a little bit more aware of the possibilities and what they can actually do. So thank you very much indeed for your time this evening. Thank you very much, Karen. Always a pleasure to speak with you. All the best. Thanks a lot. Good night to you. Professor Devet Swanepoel is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Pathology at the University of Pretoria. And to find an audiologist in your area, you can contact the South African Speech Language Hearing Association on 0861 or by email on admin at saslha.co.za. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, high blood pressure is one of the leading causes of heart attacks, strokes, kidney failure and premature death among South Africans. Well, the onset of new medical technology has paved the way for a more modern and convenient way to measure blood pressure. To chat with us this evening, I'm joined now by Dr. Vash Mongal Singh, CEO of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa. Dr. Singh, good evening. Welcome to the show. Good evening, Karen. Thank you for having me. It's one of those things that I think, you know, we always talk about it being the silent killer, and it really is. Do you want to just talk us a little bit through exactly what hypertension is and why it's called the silent killer? Yes, well, hypertension, or like most people um, know it, it's high blood pressure, is when one um, is then placed at risk for other cardiovascular type of diseases. So here we're talking about it places you at risk for um, developing heart disease and it places you at risk for um, having strokes, um, kidney disease, like you say. Um, Basically, in South Africa, we have a huge burden of hypertension in that one in three people or 30% of our population has hypertension. And it's related... um, a fair amount, I would say, um, is related to lifestyle factors. So here we're talking about dietary factors, physical activity, um, or a sedentary lifestyle, overweight or obese states, um, and nutritional factors as well, which, um, for example, salt, which all help to drive up one's blood pressure. Is there a genetic component to hypertension? Yes, there is a genetic component as well. So if there is a family history, um, and if you have a family history, then there's a strong likelihood 
that you will develop hypertension at some stage in your life in adulthood. I was rather alarmed by something I was reading earlier called the rule of halves. And just for those to know, it it says here only 50% of people with high blood pressure are aware that they have the condition. Out of these, only 50% are on treatment. And of those who are on treatment, only 50% of those are being treated effectively. That's actually quite horrifying. Yes, it is. Absolutely horrifying. Um, and, And that's the reason why... Um, it's called the silent killer because you may have high blood pressure or hypertension, but you don't have symptoms, not necessarily, until it's um, long-standing and it's quite severe, um, and then you may develop um, symptoms like headaches and dizziness and, uh, and complications of various organs. But as the silent killer, we, we lead relatively normal lives um, with a high blood pressure, and so that then evolves and it allows the time to develop into, um, into overt disease. And what is really terrifying is the fact that a large percentage of us are walking around with high blood pressure. And it's very simple to detect it. All you need to do is a, a test. It is non-invasive and the readings will, will help to, to diagnose it. And it is also relatively... Um, easy to to control as well with lifestyle factors um, and or treatment. And and all it takes is for an individual to go out there and have themselves tested. But the other side of the coin, though, is the fact that hypertension is often under or misdiagnosed and then that would lead to being inadequately treated. That's the other problem. Yes, and with newer technology, we are now learning how to deal with that problem. And this is where the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring comes in, um, where technology now helps to monitor one's blood pressure fluctuations over a period of time and average that out so you get a more accurate reading. So this was all launched yesterday, this the whole new concept here in South Africa, because, I mean, people will go off to the doctor or they'll go to the clinic and they'll have their blood pressure taken once in a couple of months or once mm-hmm. a year if they go off and have an annual physical or something like that. But that really, in the grand scheme of things, for some people, isn't. it's not for everybody, this thing, but for a lot of people, it's not enough. Yes, for a lot of people, it's not enough. And we know that, for example, up to 20% of people experienced um, what we call the white coat effect, where the anxiety and the stresses of being um, in a clinic or in, you know, with a, a doctor or a nurse um, just pushes up their, their blood pressure. So, and, and it's for that particular period of time. So it isn't necessarily, a single reading that is high isn't necessarily um, diagnostic of one being hypertensive. You need... Um, a series of readings because your blood pressure is not static. It isn't a single um, uh, static sort of reading that uh, remains constant over a period of time. It changes, um, you know, for example, day and night, you have different blood pressure readings as well. Um, and, And also in relation to what you're doing, your activity levels, anxiety levels and things like that. So the launch of this new 24 hour ambulatory blood pressure monitor Explain to us how this works and how people can go about finding out whether they are a suitable candidate to actually be using one of these. Well, it's an instrument that you would wear. Um, so you have this cuff um, that you would wear throughout the day as well as at night. And the, the technology records your blood pressure readings 
um, over uh, particular periods of time. So, so one could say, say every 20 minutes or so, you have a blood pressure taken, and that is recorded and then averaged, averaged out over that period of time um, through a 24-hour period. Um, it's it's relatively expensive, the the actual instrument itself. So what um, SIPA is doing at the moment is um, partnering with DISCHEM in making it available um, at a very, very low price uh, to people to hire this out. So the public can, can go into a DISCHEM and hire this out for a nominal amount. Um, and... You know your your GP or your um, your uh, sister will help you to to monitor exactly um, basically what your your blood pressure reading reading is and average that out so that you get a more accurate reading and you'd a- be able to make a diagnosis as to whether one is hypertensive or not. And this thing they give you a printout which you can then take off to your doctor. Yes, that printout then gets taken to a doctor. The doctor then um, analyzes that and um, would do his assessment and make a decision as to whether one is hypertensive or not, whether one needs treatment or not, um, and lifestyle-related changes as well. So as I said earlier, this isn't for everybody. So who are the people that should be looking at possibly using something like this? Well, people, the the starting point would be if you have a history um, of cardiovascular disease and hypertension in your family, then you are already at risk and you need to have yourself checked. You need to look at whether you're carrying any risk factors. Are you overweight? Um, you know, and, and lifestyle-wise, are you sedentary? Uh, what types of food do you have? Are you diabetic? Um, do you have high cholesterol levels? These are people who have already um, have risk factors. And so you need to exclude being hypertensive as well. But at the same time, um, there are others who don't overtly manifest risk factors or live unhealthy lifestyles who may also be hypertensive. So we, as the Heart and Stroke Foundation, recommend that all adults need to be tested at some stage in their lives. The starting point, of course, would be a consultation with your doctor um, or with a nurse at the clinic and um, and do your blood pressure readings, and then move on to to ambulatory blood pressure monitoring if one finds that there's a a need for it through a a risk factor assessment. The one thing you mentioned as well, that all adults should should be checking their blood pressure, but I think we also need to make it quite clear that just because you're young doesn't mean that you don't potentially have high blood pressure issues. No, not at all. In fact, um, we're now seeing... Um, you know, with the, the epidemiological transition that we're seeing in, um, in South Africa and we're seeing more overweight obesity um, problems in younger people. I mean, if you, if you look at recent studies, the results that showed us that um, up to 70% of our women are overweight uh, or obese. And we have children as well, one in 10 children who may be hypertensive. So... You know, it is a real issue where young people need to be checked as well because young people are now carrying risk factors for cardiovascular disease and hypertension. And so, yes, young people must be um, must have themselves tested as well. Should we be checking young children if, if there is, could potentially be an issue? At what sort of ages should we be checking them? Well, you know, I would, I would say from 
probably if you have a child who is overweight or obese and you, um, you know, who are showing signs and symptoms, constant headaches and things like that, yes, then in the routine assessment you should have children um, having their blood pressures taken by their doctors. Um, but again, it, one has to look at the, the big picture. One has to, to bring together symptoms, um, the, the diagnosis, whether they're carrying other risk factors or not. But um, children probably um, starting from about eight years and above should be looked at as well. So it's, it's just I really want to make the point that just because they're young doesn't mean to say that this isn't... Because I think back in the, in the day, um, it used to be considered something that happened to you when you got older. You know, people, the older people were getting high blood pressure issues. Youngsters didn't think it had anything to do with them. The perception out there is that this is a disease of older people. Mm. It is not true, not anymore. We, we're looking at, and, and the recent studies that I'm talking about that the Medical Research Council has been conducting has been looking at younger people as well. And some of their data shows um, that hypertension is already present in, in 15-year-olds. Wow. Yes. So, you know, so, so, yes, absolutely young people are at risk as well. That's actually quite a sad statistic. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Dr. Mungal Singh, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show this evening. And um, hopefully people now have some other way if they're worrying about the fact that they can't keep too much of a check on their blood pressure. This is another option for them. So go and have a word with your sister at the, the DISCAM and they'll be able to help you fill out the, the, the form to see whether you are one of the people that is um, would, would benefit from this uh, 24-hour blood pressure monitor. And uh, hopefully it will help you to be able to control it a lot better. Thank you so much for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you very much for having us. Only a pleasure. Good night to you. Bye-bye. Dr. Vash Mungal Singh is the CEO of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of South Africa. And for more information, you can take a look at their website. It's www.heartfoundation.co.za. Health Matters on SAFM. Well, I had an email from a listener a while ago who was interested in finding out more about narcolepsy. And this is a disabling neurological disorder of sleep regulation that affects the control of sleep and wakefulness. Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Kevin Rosman. He's a neurologist and chairman of the South African Society of Sleep Medicine. Dr. Rosman, good evening. Welcome to the show. Evening and hello to your listeners. Thank you. Um, narcolepsy, I think it's not quite something that people really know that much about. So you just like to explain exactly how it affects people. Okay, well, interestingly, in fact, it was the first sleep disorder that we knew about, um, and now there are 85 of them. <laughs> um, it typically causes irresistible um, onset of sleepiness during the day. There are other conditions that do this, and in fact, narcolepsy only makes up one out of 200 of cases of irresistible daytime sleepiness. So it's not all that common, but um, it's very, very interesting because of the what it teaches us about the physiology of the brain, what actually goes on there. Um, what happens when we sleep? Uh, we sleep in roughly one and a half hour cycles. We start off awake and then we go into what's called stage one sleep, that is drowsiness. Stage two, then stage three sleep is what's called slow wave sleep, that's deep sleep. Then one goes into REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep for about the last half an hour of each cycle, and then you wake. And you repeat this through the night. Now, the rapid eye movement sleep part of that is where you dream. In order to prevent you acting out your dreams, in other words, sleepwalking, your muscles become paralyzed. 
that stage. So we've got a situation where <clears throat> recurrently through the night at certain intervals, you're going into, in, into a part of the day where you're paralyzed, you're dreaming, um, and these things can happen in technicolor. Now, with narcolepsy, the, that cycle doesn't switch off. So you wake up, and roughly an hour, hour and a half later, your body tries to push you back into that part of sleep. So people tend to fall asleep. What also happens is that the other components of this whole thing happen out of sync. So they'll wake up in the morning and actually be paralyzed, not be able to move. It's called sleep paralysis. It's one of the most frightening things you can I was about to say, if you, you've woken up and suddenly you can't terrifying. get out of bed, it must be horrific. Terrifying. Usually lasts a few seconds, it feels like an hour, or until someone touches them, and then they're okay. And often they'll come running in because of that. Now that can happen with other conditions as well, but that's one of the other components. Then they get what's called hypnagogic hallucinations. These are dreams that are happening while you're still awake. Um, to split hairs is hypnopompic and hypnagogic, but let's just drop that. These will happen either just before you fall asleep or just after you wake up. And again, it's a very, very strange experience because it's like being, you, you, one is aware of what's around you, but the movie's running. So there's two realities. Um, and people think they're going crazy, they've been diagnosed with schizophrenics and all sorts of strange things. It's really just a dream phase happening when it shouldn't. Is this something that's quite difficult to diagnose then? Because some of these things sound quite frightening. Well, you know, if you've seen one or two, they're pretty standard. They're pretty characteristic. Um, there are not many conditions that have this kind of, of um, pattern. And then the last thing is called cataplexy, the last component. Now, this is another issue which is, is, can be rather disabling. The, sleep, the paralysis that happens can be triggered in some of these people by exposure to emotional uh, triggers, typically humor. Um, so what will happen is they'll be in the pub and someone will tell a joke and that paralysis will hit and they'll end up in a little pile on the floor. Um, this becomes a party joke. You know, let's see if we can make him fall down. And these people become social isolates. So apart from the fact they're falling asleep all over the show, they're actually also falling into little heaps. So the whole thing becomes um, really, really an un unpleasant uh, situation. Um, as I said, they become socially isolated. They can't hold down jobs because they keep falling asleep on the work. They can't drive because they'll fall asleep behind the wheel. Um, really becomes an enormous problem. There's no currently no cure for narcolepsy, is there? There's no cure, but there's control. Um, we use, first of all, stimulant medications, things like Ritalin, um, timed naps. If you can have a nap at the time you would normally fall asleep, you'll be okay for the next hour, hour and a half. So that can help. Um, there's a new stuff available, um, relatively new, called ProVigil, which also helps on stay awake. And we actually now know what the chemical basis of the condition is. Um, it's a lack of a chemical called orexin, or if you'd like the other set of researchers who described it called hypocritin, you can use either name. Um, and that's missing. And now the idea is to give that in tablet form. And there's something that's come fairly close to that. It's not yet available in this country. But um, as we control the condition, these people can live a very close to normal life. But it needs to be properly controlled.
What age does this suddenly begin? I mean, is this something that you, you're born with it and it starts from a very young age or is it sort of middle teens later on? What sort of age are you more likely to suddenly experience these symptoms? It'll present itself in the teens and usually. And um, all four of those may not come on together, all four of those symptoms. Um, and in fact, some people will never develop some of those symptoms. The sleepiness is constant. But um, some people will never develop the other things. But generally starts in the teens, often the early teens. So they'll be going along quite happily at school and suddenly the world collapses. Marks drop, can't stay awake in class, letters coming home, um, can't manage to go to sports and so on. It becomes very disabling at that stage. Is there a genetic component to something like narcolepsy? Well, there is, um, but it's not one of those things that you can look for in the parents. Um, There's the gene that's transferred, but it's a a multi-genetic thing. There are lots of genes involved, um, and those are probably recessively inherited, so if you just get one pair, you're not going to get it. Um, So it's not not dominantly. It's not kind of parent to child, but um, there are genes involved. It is a genetic thing. So you said this was the first sleep disorder that was discovered, mm. and um, it's well, this was described. Well, yeah. described, yes. And, and I'm sure people that are living with something like narcolepsy, it, it's a lifelong thing, and it's yes. not ever going to go away. But as you said, it is controllable, mm. Mm. and I think that is the very important point here: is that if yeah. somebody is suffering from this, um, there is something that can absolutely. be done. Absolutely, absolutely. But they need to be with someone who knows what they're doing, who knows the condition, has dealt with it a few times. Um, it's not particularly difficult, but one needs to know what you're doing with it. I mean, obviously, it, I would imagine it's often misdiagnosed as well. Um, funnily enough, yes and no. Um, it, people tend to call other things narcolepsy <laughs> rather than <laughs> not call narcolepsy something else. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, because, as I said, there are other things that are far more common. And, but everyone who falls asleep, and because it's been around, the term's been around for so long, um, they tend to call narcolepsy. And not all sleepiness is narcolepsy. Um, so, yeah, it, it actually works almost more the other way around. Is there anything that, that people can do other than the medication and li- lifestyle changes, other than, obviously, you said the, the naps and that sort yeah. of thing. Is there anything in the way of, of your diet that could no, possibly help? Nothing like that no, that would help you really. at all? Not really. Nothing at all. Yeah. Uh, funnily, funnily enough, as an interesting aside, um, this was the only medical condition for which amphetamines work. Uh, you know, medically are indicated. And when they, the amphetamines were banned a number of years ago, the neurological community was up in arms because we said, well, how on earth are we going to treat these patients? Um, so there is actually, it's actually possible when people are resistant to all the other things to get permission from the Department of Health. It, it's quite a business and lots of letter writing and so on, but actually it's possible to get permission to use that <laughs> Well, I think the, the very positive thing that's coming out of this, though, is for people possibly listening who suffer from something like this, is first, that first of all, that it has a name, because possibly a lot of people are walking around with some of the symptoms, because mm, as you mm. said, they don't always have all four of them. Um, they have possibly have some of them, and probably thinking they're going absolutely crazy. Right. That's the first thing, you're not crazy. And secondly, that there is medication that can help okay. you. One of the most important things is the correct diagnosis. Because yes. So there are other conditions that um, are much easier to treat, and that are, in fact, much more common. What other things are similar to this that people might have been diagnosed with, but it isn't that? It's the most this. common one is sleep apnea. 
people who stop breathing at night. Oh, right, yes, that's very scary. Um, and all the variations on the, on the theme. There's something called upper airways resistance syndrome. The classical sleep apnea is the obese middle-aged male who snores. I've got loads and loads of young skinny females who don't snore and who are falling asleep all the time. Um, and they have a variation of the sleep apnea. And then there are movement disorders. The most common one is periodic limb movement where people twitch at night. Mm. Um, they get maybe even a toe might just twitch and that causes an arousal. They're not getting quality sleep and the next day they're tired. Um, and they'll also fall asleep all over the place. Is this this jerking, twitching legs syndrome? Or well, whatever the restless cause? legs is what mm. they have experienced while they're awake, before they fall asleep. Okay. And the sleep component of that, which is pretty much the same thing, is called periodic limb movements. And that is just the little twitches um, that, that can wake them up. Well, not fully wake, just into a lighter sleep. And they can be woken a hundred times an hour. So, you know, they wake up a bit of a wreck the next day. Um, but they will also experience the excessive sleepiness. So when we test for these things, we first do an overnight test for the uh, breathing disorders and the movement disorders. And the following day, during the day, we do um, a test specifically focused on the narcolepsy. And using those two together, we can get a very accurate diagnosis. So if people are concerned about they possibly might have something like this, would they consult their GP as their first port of call? Yeah, and beat him around the ears to send them to someone who knows about sleep medicine um, because there are not too many of those, of those animals around and he might have to look for someone, but there are people around. And um, he's, it's probably advisable that he doesn't treat it himself. He needs help. Okay, so speak to your GP and ask him to refer you to somebody who deals in sleep medicine. Yep. And they, I mean, they're doctors. They should be able to find out the best yeah. place because I'm sure you know there's people all over the country. They need to find the closest one to them, and your GP would be the best per first port of call. And, the, and and the bottom line here is, if you are suffering from any of these things we've been talking about, you are not crazy. It's a real thing. That's right. When you're, you're seeing those things. They're, they're dreams. You're not going cuckoo. Yeah. You're not schizophrenic. <laughs> but that actually must be quite scary of you oh, suddenly true. being diagnosed as schizophrenic. Absolutely. And you keep thinking, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm fine. Yeah. It's just these weird things that keep happening yeah. to me. Yeah. You know, other people probably think you're crazy. Too. You're not crazy. Yeah. And their dreams are in Technicolor. They're very vivid. <laughs> they're okay. very lively. Um, so quite a characteristic type of dream that happens there. I suppose in some way that's a little bit of a benefit. You get a whole better dream than the rest of us. I suppose so, yeah. You know, <laughs> we all just get the black and white version. You know, so you guys are getting the color version. So, you know, there are, there are perks. Always look for the, the bright side of everything. There's a slight perk there. Oh, Dr. Rosman, you've, you've, I'm sure, helped a lot of people to feel a whole lot better about so. themselves this evening. Thank you very much for your time. Thank Thanks. you for explaining all about narcolepsy. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. Thanks so much. Good yeah, night to you. Right. I was speaking there with neurologist Dr. Kevin Rosman, and he's the chairman of the South African Society of Sleep Medicine. And as he says, if you feel that you could possibly be suffering from narcolepsy, please do consult your GP and ask him or her to refer you to the closest doctor who deals with sleep medicine. They should be able to find that quite easily and uh, hopefully they'll be able to help you. There's medication and there's all sorts of tests they can do and they'll definitely be able to put you on the right path and you'll be able to hopefully have a much calmer, quieter life and a much better sleep experience. Health Matters on SAFM. It was New Year's Eve 2011 and it was a date that started the people of South Africa on a journey, a very tough journey. 
but people were glued to the media waiting for the next installment of what was happening in the life of Pippi. And I'm chatting now with Pippi's mom, Annika Kreer, and uh, she's going to be telling us a little bit about what it was like for her and her family to go through this absolutely incredibly stressful time. Annika, welcome to the show. And I think just start us off from the beginning, because from the very start, Pippi has been um, the most incredible child reading through the book. She was so peaceful and quiet on her way to hospital that initial night when you would have thought that she would be screaming and she wasn't. I think I was screaming for both me and Pippi. It actually ripped my heart out for Pippi to be so quiet, looking at me like, what's going on? I wanted her to be crying. I wanted her to be screaming. Um, she was in pain, but she didn't show anything. It was so much smiles and everything. So through all of it, I mean, we're almost two years down the line. Her strength has kept me going. It's her and God's will and the way God gave me strength. Yeah, you can't turn your back on something like that. So we've been strong through everything. Of course, we had our ups and downs and getting tired and getting frustrated and angry. But then when you're done with all the negative, you can just turn back to the good, turn back to the positive, And here we are today. The one thing I think that came through through the entire time that we were watching the story unfold was the fact that Pippi really oughtn't to be here now. She, the doctors gave her almost no chance of survival and she fought. You fought, she fought, but she has literally turned everything upside down. I mean, it's not possible that she's supposed to be here. I think I was really so naive to hear anything negative the doctor said. I mean, Pippi died 17 times, if you have to count it all together. And Dr. Mia telling me, please go and look on burnfaces.com. Look for the worst picture because that's how Pippi will look. And after that, you just tell them, there's no way. You fix my child. I want her back perfectly. And when you're done fighting with God and done fighting with the doctors, you just work together. And as I said again, here we are today. And I wish everyone can meet Pippi in person just to see this miracle, just to see how she's really looking. Those tiny little miracles, her belly button growing back after it was burned away completely. And they told us that we will have to reconstruct a new one and her ears and her nose and everything and after every recess she would wake up with a smile so Pippi's still with us. Well she's sitting here in front of me now I'm looking at her she's looking absolutely gorgeous beautiful beautiful child and a miracle child actually is what she really is. I think what a lot of people didn't realize Annika is how badly burnt she really was because when you think about a burn you think about a surface burn and it's the skin but in Pippi's case it was a lot more than that. You get a chart on how to work out burn wounds and after they established that it was third degree burn wounds then you take the percentage of your body which was Pippi's was 80% as Dr. Mia said, 83%. Then you add 10% because that's the death rate, usually after a burn because of sepsis and your organs failing, and you add the age. So Pippi had 4 to 7% chance of survival, and anything under 20%, they don't, really, they don't really think there is much chance of survival. So Pippi with a 4 to 7% chance of survival. Describing burn wounds, first degree is sunburned. Second degree is where it makes the blister and it pops and, yeah, it hurts so much. Third degree burns, you don't feel it at all. Your skin burns away, your fat layer burns away, your muscle burns away, and it's just before it starts 
burning the bone. That's third degree. And fourth degree is right to the bone. And so Pippi had that 80% all over her body. So terrible. It was terrible to see her like that. And to date, she's had 54 operations, I think I heard earlier. That's an enormous amount of anesthetic for a child as small as her to survive. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. The first time Dr. Will Roberts did anesthetics on Pippi, he told me Pippi was almost on so much medication that it would <laughs> look illegal to someone that just read the charts. It was so much just to keep her blood pressure, just to keep her heart beating, just to keep her breathing at all so yeah. that if they give her anesthetics they will give her amount for 10 fully grown men just to keep her sedated and if anything goes wrong under that amount of anesthetics there would be absolutely nothing they would give her to resuscitate her again because adrenaline was over the limit everything was there so yeah for him to actually sorry, had the guts to give Pippi that amount of anesthetics, having to tell her mom that there's no way your child will wake up after this. And then when she did, she woke up with a smile. What about the rehab? We've, you spent a long time with her in the hospital. And then after that, she, it wasn't, that wasn't the end of it. You then had to go off for all the rehabilitation. Where are you with that? And how is Pippi doing now? Initially, when Pippi went to rehab, they told us that she was so severely brain damaged, she will never walk, talk, sit. She will be a vegetable. She is retarded. So, yeah, um, me being the mom I am, I told the neurologist that we will give it a chance on meds. It didn't work. It made every symptom 20 times worse. So I took Pippi off every sort of medication. Pippi's not even using anything right now except Scott's emulsion. But after that... Pippi said mama to me the first time and I exploded. And after the mama, papa came out and booty. And now she's talking in three, four word sentences. Mm. She is sitting by herself. She mm -hmm. is trying to crawl. She's taking stuff from you. It's amazing. The only thing that you can see that there may be brain damage is her one eye turns to turns cue when she concentrates too hard. But when she wears her glasses, nothing goes wrong with her eyes. So... I still believe there's absolutely nothing wrong with Pippi, that she just needed a break from the whole world, and she's slowly becoming Pippi again. You mentioned now that one, some of the things that she's saying is Papa and Butty. In, in the grand story of Pippi, um, your husband Erwin was also very badly burnt, not as badly, obviously, as Pippi, but was also very badly burnt during this, this horrendous accident. How is he doing now? And also you have a little boy, Arno. How is he doing? Um, my husband was also badly burned, third degree burn wounds on his chest from trying to killing the flames on Pippi. And both hands was also third degree burn very, very severely that he was also in ICU for a week. Arno was five months old when I had to give him over to my mommy saying she must take over the role. And he is the cutest thing in the whole wide world. He acts like he's the big brother. Uh, Pippi absolutely hates that. But... It's like they never missed 18 months of each other's lives. They have this amazing bond with each other. It's awesome. Pippi is a complete daddy's girl. When I'm around, I'm only allowed to change the nappies. The rest, daddy must do everything for her. So, yeah, it's awesome. It's like 
yeah, we went through this ordeal. It was hard, but we made it. We are on top of the world. <laughs> the one thing that came, comes through in your book as well, the Annika, which is why, why we're chatting today, the launch of the book Pippi that Annika has written together with Colleen Nordea, and it is, it's available in shops, definitely something to go out and get. And parts of the proceeds of the, of the sales of this book are going towards the Pippi Sakhasuchi Fund, which is going towards helping with future expenses in Pippi's life and also to help other burn vict- young burn victims and have already helped some of them. It's been amazing what they've done. But I don't think anything of this, Annika, could have happened without a really good team behind you. And I think we all sat in absolute awe when Dr. Mia performed this amazing skin graft. Tell us a little bit about your team and about the operation that the world came to South Africa to find out about. Sure, if I have to talk about the team, I'm going to sit here chatting for hours and hours. My main man, except for my husband and my son, is Dr. Ridwan Mia. He is awesome. I love him to bits. Tonight, when I gave Pippi over to him for the skin graft, I told him I love you. I trust you with my whole life. And he went into theater in tears just for me saying that. He's like my big brother. To rest like wool, and he's a day of the anesthetics for them to have to go through this with Ridwan, crying in theatre every time they worked on Pippi, coming out as robots telling me this and this and this and just running away so they could give over to their emotions again. And then there was all the sisters and all the other doctors like Dr. Bartlett, my old man, I love you too, but then yeah, the whole rehab team, then came all the friends I met. Then after that, it was Lynn from Oz and their team and Colleen and Sua and Kum and... Yeah, there's so many. It's just too awesome. And I can't do anything without any of them. There's times where I would feel like this, so I would know exactly who I can call. There was times where I would feel like this, so I would know exactly who to chat to. And then two very special people is Odette. She was the one that I had to record everything for for this book, and she had to type it over. So she was like my shrink. And then there's Mohammed Makta, he's Pippi's dry needlist and physio. And I think if someone had to hear some of our conversations, we would end up in a psych ward because it's ridiculous what we talk about. But that's my therapy. We just laugh and laugh. And that while he's doing his thing on Pippi and making Pippi do things we would never think about. So every person... Even though it was someone on Facebook, even though it was someone that just sent a message or a letter or that Japanese lady that called me from Japan and the one from Brazil that I don't have a clue what they were saying, except I knew they were talking about Pippi when they called. It's just special. It's awesome. And the operation of all operations, that, that was just phenomenal. Talk me through how that came about. Everyone knows about the ambulance for 16 minutes. I drove it on... Wednesday morning, it took me one hour, 45 minutes to get to the airport in peak traffic. I don't know how Kenneth did that in 16 minutes. After that, they took Pippi in. I was with her when they put it under anesthetics. I was there when they brought in that box of skin. I was there when Dr. Mia came out in tears telling me that, yeah, they used 31 pieces he gave me a piece of puppy skin so I could touch it and feel it. And that was okay. I said it was like Christmas. Now I got my Christmas gift. But a week after, I could open up puppy's bandages. And when he told me that 95% of the skin took when we were praying for 50, 60% to take, it was, oh, it was awesome. And 
knowing that that 5% that didn't take was going to heal all by itself, just knowing that Pippi, sorry, it sounds terrible to say it like this, won't look like a crocodile in the end, because when you do a normal graft, it looks like alligator skin. And this was such a success. And it was so funny that 93 countries reported on this. They realized we can do this operation. We have the, the doctors to do this. After that operation, as I said, Dr. Will Roberts was the first one to tell me that Pippi won't survive the anesthetics and when he came out and told me Pippi will be perfect he made me cry right there it was it's so awesome it it was the most awesome thing that could ever happen to anyone well for those very few people who probably haven't heard about what happened let me just tell you that Annika was offered a few options when it came to doing the skin grafts none of which she thought were going to work or in her mind they were not right for Pippi and then somebody told her about a website she went and had a look did some research on growing new skin from stem cells and they did this they sent stem cells over to america skin was grown over there it was flown back to south africa they had 24 hours from the time it left the lab in america to the time it got to the hospital here in, in johannesburg and she was talking about the 16 minutes that's the time it took the the vehicle to get from or tambo to the garden city clinic in peak hour traffic for those of you living in johannesburg will know that it's almost an impossibility the skin arrived all perfectly and as Annika says the operation was a huge success the future for you Annika looking bright it's like a bright light shining in your eyes and you're just running towards it with Pippi's ah, progress we yeah. know there's still gonna be a lot of operations in the future ah. um, <laughs> but we're ready for it but there will be no way that I will force Pippi into anything the day when she comes to me and says mommy I'm perfect I'm done that's when we will stop but as long as she's willing to undergo more ops we will do it for her like we will need to one day give a boobie sorry for the word but she doesn't have any breast tissue left and we will need to help some of the skin grow and cut out some keloids and i just wanted to walk and talk so we can sit and gossip again for hours and i just wanted to be happy so we are walking towards complete happiness <laughs> so basically what you're saying is you want your princess back I want my puppy princess back. I have her. Like, she's still wrapped up. I just need to take that wrapping off. Well, just to tell you that the, the book is now out. It's called Puppy, and it's by Annika Kreer, who is Puppy's mom. And Puppy, just as a little aside, her name is Isabella, but this is her family nickname is Puppy. So we all know her. The whole world knows her as Puppy. The book is called Puppy. It's by Annika Kreer and Kali Nordia. It's available in all good bookstores. It's published by Christian Art Publishers. And, um, I would suggest you go and get yourself a copy. It will make your day. And just to let you know that I have three copies of this book for the first three callers to call in on 0892102010, Three signed copies, signed by Annika, as well as the author who helped her to write the book. Well, that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine, with time to travel. So join me for that. And my special guest on the show tomorrow evening is Bram Malherber, who is uh, one of those extraordinary adventurers who's been all over the place and he's going to be talking to us about his Great Wall of China run and his centenary race to the South Pole. So quite an adventurous evening tomorrow night. Well, if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening or you've missed a contact number or a website address, you could email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or you can take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hello, Stephen. 